you are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen. On the line with us, we have Robert Durgan. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing all right. Thank you. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, not many people might know who you are or what your influence has been within the political space. You present yourself as a, a political consultant. What exactly is that? Well, that just means that uh, I have certain <laughs> knowledge about politics and policy formation and um, people <laughs> ask me to help them uh, figure certain things out with regards to either, you know, r- reputation protection or, uh, uh, or, or otherwise for forming policies and risk analysis, things like that, um, and that I get pay for it, paid for it. Um, and not much more complex than that. Oh, that's fantastic. It's always good to be paid for, for something. <laughs> paid, paid for your passion, yeah. and I assume it is your passion, otherwise you wouldn't, wouldn't be doing it or be so knowledgeable in, in this arena. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I digress somewhat there. We're chatting, uh, I was talking earlier on about how, the influence that uh, ideology can carry towards public policy formation, both from a government's point of view and um, the inherent bias that uh, participants, you know, the public might might have when when commenting on policy amendments and such. Um, did, in your experience, have you come across much uh, political bias and driving agendas? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's an obvious it's a funny way to put it. Because, yeah. um, look, I mean, everyone knows that bias is universal. But we all we all still have this idea of of objectivity that we're all trying to get towards because we know that there's a real world out there and there are people who have real interests and that in the interests of seeing ourselves as a single community or commonwealth, there's the idea that we should pursue things that are in the interests of everyone who's a part of this community. And so um, a lot of people will, you know, design policies that uh, design ideologies rather. Uh, at, at a very high level, you know, academics, philosophers, those kinds, um, in order to try and give a picture of what these interests are or what people should be doing in society that addresses these interests in a way that, uh, as they see them. Um, but uh, the, the thing is that while many, many different pictures of, of the world come about in philosophy, um, which ones survive and which ones influence policy, there's a sort of um, evolutionary selective process that's driven by power. And so, you know, universities promote those ideas which give it the greatest, give them the greatest prestige. And uh, that prestige is determined by an international community of scholars. And those things which, which favor their careers are those things which favor getting grants. And so there's a, a very, very large sort of economic financial uh, driver behind these things. But while it might be tempting to look at this and say, okay, well, then it's the market that's driving you, that's not strictly true. I mean, um, a huge amount of that funding comes from, you know, the United States, the um, United Nations, uh, the European Union, uh, various, United, uh, various sort of national level um, grant programs. Uh, you've also got private uh, so-called philanthrop- philanthropic organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates Foundation, um, Carnegie Foundation. Um, and all of these, all of these uh, entities have their own agendas, and so they'll 
pick and choose which ideologies to use based on how they fit into the long-term plans of these institutions and um, organizations. Yeah, that is that is quite quite a concern, and we've seen it uh, quite obvious in in many cases on some major global global agendas. And well, not afraid to say that we've seen it, uh, political and ideological influence within issues such as climate change and uh, land expropriation and and so on, which all seem to be intertwined and driven from a particular point of view. You mentioned that uh, funding plays a major role in in a our tertiary institutions, and uh, honestly, I couldn't agree more. Especially when it comes to to research and perhaps pre predetermined uh, modelling, as, as such, um, there seems to be science seems to have taken a, a step out out the window, and it's no longer critical thinking, but rather uh, develop this theory to meet this predetermined outcome. I think this is the thing that we actually have to remember: is that reason is the instrument of will. And so people, people largely because of some rather sort of unfounded ideas from the Enlightenment era, we tend to believe that reason already is sort of like a mechanism that gives us the truth. But um, from, my, from my perspective, the, the thing we have to realize is that our reasoning powers, and that includes things like mathematics and so on and, and how we build concepts and ideas – this is this is a way of giving an account for how we see the world or how we wish to see the world or what we wish to see in others. And so it all depends on what we actually want at the end of the day. And um, and we're all playing games of persuasion. Um, and I think the thing is that we're trying to figure out what games of persuasion people are playing, whether or not they're pursuing truth, whether or not, whether they're pursuing vested interests, or whether they're captured by some kind of idea that they are uncritically absorbing and reflecting as a result of a part of their environment that they haven't um, sort of criticized before. This is very difficult to figure out, and it's actually, um, and I think it takes a very long and difficult time sifting through a lot of literature for anyone to figure these threads out. So the average person is quite ill-equipped um not because not because of a lack of intelligence but simply just time you know people don't really have the time to critically examine everything around them i think that you're absolutely right that uh, time does play a major influence there and you know in today's world where we're bombarded with an overwhelming amount of information we really don't have the time to process everything that's thrown at us so we we default to that's what's easiest or what is more commonly acceptable within within our communities or or larger larger countries? You know, it talks. I've heard people talk about a a common standard of of morals or a moral standard. Yet, you know, in a country that's so diverse, such as such as South Africa, we have to question what is that uh, standard? Can there be a common standard? For all cultures, can there be a, a, a common set of rules for all cultures, given such given such diversity? Well, I, I'm I'm a pessimist, so I, I I'll say no. But that's largely because for for that answer to be yes, strictly speaking, it's not impossible to create a common standard, but it requires um, a kind of human engineering which doesn't respect the the natural values of of people as they exist in the real world, and I think. Um, people, very few people realize how much the uh, South Africa has in common, the, the, the unification, uh, South Africa has in common with the global community. 
um, as, as a concept. Um, because, uh, I mean, Jan Smuts, who designed our constitution, had, had a very sort of advanced um, philosophy. I don't say a good philosophy. I say advanced in terms of its mm. complexity. Um, and he had this general idea that all matter in the universe was evolving towards a higher complex unity. And he believed that the highest form of collective intelligence that all of matter and life and spirit would evolve into was the United Nations, uh, which he had a very heavy hand in designing. Uh, and so, and, and not just him, but also Alfred Zimmern and that whole era of um, intellectuals and statesmen have an outsized impact on how we view the world and the ultimate purpose of not only South Africa, but the global Western community. Because th these communities, while, while they sort of uh, tend to pretend to some kind of liberal universalism, this is actually the liberal universalism of the British Empire and was established by a, an Anglo-American um, elite who... Um, they had certain ideas for, for how humanity's evolution was intended to be guided for all eternity. Very, very far more uh, sort, of, sort of religious perspective than you'd imagine. I mean, Julian Huxley, who founded UNESCO, he actually firmly believed in the uh, constructive creation of a new religion to service this, uh, this project. Um, and a lot of their ideas are very, very similar to that of uh, of Jan Smuts in his book Holism and Evolution, which is in fact where we get the concept of holism from. And it guided a lot, and his ideas guided a lot of the reforms of John Dewey, uh, who completely transformed uh, West, the Western education systems um, throughout the late 20s and early 30s in, in the United States. So. Um, the, these ideas um, that form the basis of UNESCO, um, they, they were sort of greeted by by functionaries in in, in the United Nations um, as a sort of preparatory ground for where they're headed. And the idea was to foster norms and policies that bridged gaps between different nations and undermined uh, national sovereignty because national sovereignty was seen as highly dangerous, tending towards warfare. Um, and so the the entire idea was to critically examine and, uh, and break down all of the different cultures of people around the world to form one central culture that could be guided by these enlightened uh, Anglo-American elites from above. And um, in the 1970s, the, the, the highest, most prestigious research institutes in the world, UNESCO and the American Social Science Research Institution, uh, made critical theory um, among its official uh, methodological instruments. And so what, what we see nowadays where we've got all of this you know, post-structuralism, critical theory, post-modernism, all the stuff that people are complaining about, it's largely a result of the power and prestige of the post-war American uh, project of universal global domination. Hmm. Um, and so all of the things that we're doing are downstream of this. And in South Africa, our, uh, our national project for for you know, creating this weird idea of South Africanism, which doesn't resemble the cultures of any of the people on the ground, except for a tiny, tiny minority of English-speaking elites, uh, largely in Cape Town. So you you, you get this very um, peculiar, and, and the most peculiar thing I think anyone listening to this will, will notice is that um, 
it's those very people <laughs> who who mostly in Cape Town who most oppose Cape Independence, which is so a, a, fun, a funny irony because something like Cape Independence is the very act of declaring it sort of says, well, here's here's a particular culture, here's a particular part of the world that has a culture that can't integrate with another culture um, because of certain political animosities that exist for historical reasons, and that it'll function better independently. Any movement for independence is threatens to criticize this idea that perfect eternal integration into this great um, unified centralized whole um, it, 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 the very act of declaring separation from that is a very profound um, and dangerous criticism of the dominant power system in the world today um, which is partially driving the, the, the new cold war with China at the moment because China and Russia sort of are saying no you know we have our own civilization our own culture we don't like being told what to do by the the sort of legacy um, the legacy power systems of the of the transatlantic elite we have our own way of doing things so um, I and I, I the, the funny thing is we, we look at something particularistic and we think you know okay um, so the black power movements that are that came up in Rhodes Must Fall of which I was uh, I was a part uh, back in 2015 when they first emerged um, we we look at those and we assume that it's it's sort of a spontaneous indigenous response, but almost all of the ideas that the students were using came um, first or second hand from European intellectuals. Um, and most of these ideas were promoted again by this, by the United Nations, which fosters a system which is favorable to, you know, a certain, a certain sector of the international um, financial and logistical um, economy. So, uh, the, the, the connections of these global systems um, and the power systems that they serve, they're not always apparent because these people on the ground are talking about white monopoly capital, they're talking about all of this kind of stuff, but there, there's sort of a crude way in which they do it, in which they fail to distinguish between the the, the native, um, well, I suppose native would probably be an okay word, because the native white population like the Afrikaners. They don't distinguish between the general white population in South Africa and the extremely powerful capitalists who, who, um, who also are white, who have such a powerful influence in South Africa. Um, I mean, for example, we, we can look at the Brenthurst Foundation and their influence on forming the black economic empowerment policies in South Africa. The, the connection between large scale industry and, and government here is, 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 you know, rather, has a rather long standing. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah. and and there's a paradox here because we're taught to think, okay, so right wing is pro market and pro white people, and left wing is pro government and pro black people. But you know, this is a false dichotomy that serves to obscure the real direction in which power and um, economic um, wealth flows. And the 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 great sort of economic powers and the families who've been who've been in charge for 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 for, for a very long time in the West. Um, you know, they, the, the Rockefellers and so on, they, they've weathered changes from socialism and communism to capitalism and back again without much shift. I mean, you can look at China as a fantastic example of this, where 85% of the families who make up the ruling class today 
were in the aristocracy of the Qing dynasty um, before before the communist and nationalist revolutions. So this sort of prevailing class that can that is capable of shifting and taking advantage of changes in um, political culture is is a permanent one. I think the only exception I can think of perhaps would be uh, that of Soviet Russia, um, where there was a rather complete purge. Um, but that, funnily, funnily enough, if I if I may go on with my very long ramble here, <laughs> is um, it, the, the, the the strange connection here is is that both the Soviet Union and African socialism were financed rather heavily by British and American capital. That's so yes, and so um, I mean Anthony Sutton did great research into this, um, and there's a good interview with him on YouTube if you don't want to read his big heavy academic books, um, and. It turns out that the um, the Russian Revolution was financed by by many Western capitalists, and also, I mean, if you look at Magnitogorsk, that great sort of um, that great sort of Soviet industrial city was built by Ameri- was was built largely by American um, industrialists. So, um, and and of course, Tiny Roland, on the other hand, was uh, was financed and backed by MI5, and he ran around making deals with. Um, socialist African dictators like Kwame Nkrumah. And the the utility of socialism is that it gives um, international uh, capital a single point of access from which to capture the entire state. So, yeah, and so it it eliminates mid-market opposition for any large-scale enterprise. Um, and and so what what black what black nationalists and African nationalists sort of fail to observe is that their entire ideology has, manuf- has been manufactured for them by international um, forces, which w- which can look on with a good chuckle at them thinking they're fighting capital while actually serving Supportive. it. That's exactly right. Yes, Rob, we're going to take a quick ad break, and then when we come back, I'd like to touch on something that that you that you mentioned there. It was. Uh, about the UN's involvement in in policy making and and how apparent apparent that is, but hang on there. Let's we'll take a quick break and we'll join the conversation right away after that. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. Rob Dagen, and we're having a fascinating conversation about the influence or impact that political ideology can have on you know, policy formation and on general politics of a country. And it goes mostly undetected or unnoticed by, by yourself. Now, um, well, there's so many questions that, that I have here to ask, Rob, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can yes, it's, it's, it is the big question. I mean, I think, I think the problem is, People don't even know what ideology is, and myself, I think, you know, they don't really sit and explain it to you at university. And so, the, I mean, I've had to come up with a funny little definition myself: is that it's sort of artificially designed norms that structure political behavior for a particular goal. And so, um, it, you you instrumentally create a system for describing the world and, and saying what is right and wrong that then through the instruments of the state or through other institutions, um, you get people to believe so that they enforce them as if it is morality. Um, 
that brings in the whole question as to uh, do we really have free will when it, when it comes to that? Although we might think we do, there are so many influencing factors and little mm. subtle interferences with with our that constantly constantly bombard our, our mind and and influence our, our thinking into into direction. The media plays a major part in in that That's as well, and. It's no secret that the media definitely has a a left leaning uh, bias um, in mm. most countries across the world, and um, brings into question as to who controls that and why they're doing that and 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 so on. A major problem as as well is the UN and their influence on policy uh, drafting and amendments, particularly in South Africa. And, uh, um, I've been witness to that, and I've seen a common thread here of, of UN policies infiltrating uh, local South African South African policies. Yeah, I mean, even the motto of the nation, unity and diversity, is actually just taken from UN policy documents. So South Africa, in many ways, is sort of the Frankenstein of the international community. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're a testing ground for most of their, po- uh, their, their, their policies. Um, and I think I think also the the, the thing is that this in a, uh, this sort of international Anglo-American establishment is is very porous, and so the, the association between these different organisations is very it's very blurred. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things that uh, that you might be interested to learn is that there's um, the CIA actually funded the publication of post-colonial literature, including things like by Bessie Head or Ngugiwa Tiong or um, other people like that. Um, so the yeah, and as, and they set up in 1975. They actually set up a um, a branch of the American. Oh goodness gracious me! I, f- I forget how these acronyms go. Uh, the 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 informa- the U.S. Information Office, I think it's called, mm-hmm. and they sort of do dissemination of American friendly um, sort of ideology and stuff abroad. Or they did. I'm not sure exactly what their role is now, but uh, they um, in 1975 they set one up in Soweto. Um, and one of their big things was pushing uh, sort of uh, racial equity. I mean, if you look at the minutes of the meeting at the time uh, when they were setting up this branch, uh, and this, the, these people trade information with uh, the CIA. They're sort of like a, a neutral front for American intelligence. Um, so mm-hmm. the, the, one of their big things was to push sort of, you know, diversity, which would be uh, – Particularly gender and race diversity, which which had become a big central part of American policy at home after the civil rights movement, and to sort of project that abroad. I mean, the the, the strange complications of uh, of this well-meaning sort of set of policies um, is that when they make their way uh, make their way abroad, they can they can have very interesting they can have very interesting impacts. I mean, even at home, uh, one of the peculiar side effects of um, uh, of of the, of the protection against discrimination has been that, in order to avoid uh, legal uh, injunctions, the the um, corporations of the United States have sort of gone out of their way to preempt any sort of uh, criticism that they might be racially biased. And so now you have this extraordinary architecture uh, internationally of um, uh, you know human resources agencies that teach the uh, teach the um, employees how to be, as they say now, anti-racist, which is mm. to invert the sort of race caste hierarchy and um, mm. 
and many of the, training, yeah. yeah, and 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 they do it under the scope of so, uh, of something that is supposedly backed up by s- the science. But the people who came up with many of the core ideas were no more than sort of um, second rate teachers in the 1970s. I mean, the idea of um, ra- uh, you know racism equaling power and privilege was it was a solution to a peculiarly sort of a non problem. Um, this teacher, I can't remember her name, but she she wrote this book in 1971. Well, it's not a book; it's really a pamphlet, but it became very popular in activist circles. And she was finding that in her um, in her primary school class, now that all of the all of the children had you know the, had gotten the benefit of the civil rights program and the integrated schools and whatever, um, the children felt that they were equal. But because she was supposed she was aware of all of the historical inequalities and the wealth inequalities. Uh, her perspective was that these kids are not equal, and so uh, when when a black kid would pick up on a, pick on a white kid or demand un- uh, you know sort of unfair favor, then the white kid would say no, we are equal. This is where the line uh, the line is, and she said, well that's no good because they're actually systemically disadvantaged and the black kids poor at home and so on, and so actually the the the, the white kid should be more accommodating to the black kid even if it means tolerating bullying. So. Um, yeah. And what that's transformed into is a large architecture of, of sort of normative um, prescriptions, which now pervade the entire Western world, which say that sort of white people can't really object to ill treatment from non-white people, and and men can't object to ill treatment from women, <laughs> unless they unless they conform to a certain ideological prescription that is found in these ideologies, which have been designed for a purpose that has nothing to do with the workplace dynamics of large-scale corporations. So we live in this very sort of alien and removed world where we've got these ideas that are not designed to solve any realistic problems, um, but structure are the minutest aspects of our day-to-day interactions um, in very, very aggressive ways. Mm-hmm. This is exactly um, what it is seem like. It's it's almost as if they, they are designed to do that, to almost highlight are differences where we weren't even aware well, of them. I would be careful. Before. I'd be careful of going that far. I mean, I think that I think there's also a local. Uh, they're, they're localized incentives. So if so, if you look at um, sort of any 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 public organization, where you can see this very easily, somewhere like Netflix, where mm-hmm. you know office politics immediately influences what content they put out. Um, the, the the sort of spats that you see between journalists or or editors or content producers anywhere. Mm-hmm. What facilitates power in office politics is the cynical leveraging of these um, of these norms within the office space. And in the old days, the norms that you would leverage would be, can you get stuff done? Um, or, you know, and so it, it, it sort of engendered a sort of ruthless efficiency. But mm-hmm. now the, the incentives are no longer to ruthless efficiency, um, but towards um, asserting victimhood status and using that to... Um, Push a sort of a propagandistic um, image of the world, That's right, and yeah. so this is this is fairly pernicious on many levels. Um, but I, I would hesitate to say that there's there's any sort of rainbow world waiting for us when we get rid of it. Um, you know, yes. it, the the world is struggle, and uh, and we are going to face sort of a, a degree of ugliness, whether we have this or not. Definitely. So I think people who want to people who want to react to it too strongly should probably do so with a little caution. 
Definitely. We're going to take a, a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to wrap up with perhaps some solutions as to how you can overcome this in, inherent bias or be aware of of what is what is actually going on and the unseen influences that might take away your your free will. Uh, join us right after the break. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen. How do we, as South Africans, you know, in such diverse society that that we live in, and you know, we are compelled under the constitution to be involved in policy making? How do, how do we create policy that meets the interests of majority of South Africans or all South Africans without creating without creating conflict? Any solutions on that? Well, I mean, that's that's not e- easy anywhere, um, even in the best of circumstances. Uh, I mean, you, you, one can look at Switzerland, which is one of the most peaceful countries in the world, but they fight over policy every day. And so it's not like argument goes away. But I think that in terms of the really sort of pernicious problems that we're dealing with in South Africa and the rest of the former British Empire, um, what, what, what we really have to deal with is a sort of social pressure to believe that certain things are wrong or right when we can all see that they aren't. Um, and so the pressures of what is called social justice, I mean, to call it social justice implies very clearly that it is a separate thing from justice. And I think most of us are imbued with some sort of innate conscience. Um, and I think that we need to hew to that rather than to um, too much to the pressure of society around us. I think that, um, and I'm going to be a little bit personal about this, and hopefully it's something pertinent to your listeners as well, um, because I was a member of Roads Must Fall when I was at University of Cape Town. And the reason that I joined was not so much because I thought removing statues was a good idea, but because when hearing the speeches of my peers um, at the gatherings, I thought, well, what they're doing is they're saying something very positive. They're, 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 being proud of who they are and they're being proud of being intellectuals and I thought the two of these things education and self-esteem are good things but I very sort uh, very uh, very soon and very swiftly saw it metamorphose into a group that promoted um, segregation and genocide mm-hmm. and the strange thing is that absolutely nobody criticized this and when I did in my very sort of quiet and mild mannered way at the time amongst my own circle I got very radically ostracized from, from, from the broader university society. I became a pariah. Um, and some of the things that happened because people let this go are quite extraordinary. I remember, I, I think people will be aware that UCT every year does something called Israeli Apartheid Week. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a Palestinian camp who set up and explain why Israel is mistreating Palestinians. And there's an Israeli camp that set up and say, well, we're trying our best and we're doing what we think is right in our own context and so on and so forth. And there's a there's a sort of res- there's a sort of respectful distance between the two for the most part. And uh, uh, but one year, I think it was in 2017, um I saw a large group of black nationalist students, um, including EFF and BLF students, mm-hmm. who um, who started antagonizing the, the Jewish camp and said Hitler should have finished you off. Jeez, and the thing is, so this, was, this was very loud, and this was in view of a large number of people. Mm-hmm. But everyone had been so cowed, and um, that... 
nobody, the the only person who made complaint was actually a, 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 to the to the, the authorities at the university was actually as someone from the Palestinian Solidarity Front. Peculiar, you know. Look, so, Robert, I'd, yeah. I'd love to chat about this. I think if we should actually chat about mm. this next week. We've unfortunately run out of time there. 